really would have liked to have given this, you know, out on the field live to you all. But um, got to believe that, that uh, where we find ourselves this morning is exactly where God desired us to be. So with that, we'll just get into it. I'm in, in uh, week 12 of our series from the book of Acts. Today we're in um, Acts chapter 14. It's going to be verses 8 through 22. And uh, there's a whole lot in me um, that I just, I'm praying and uh, I've been asking God that I can get out in a really clear way. So we're, we're, uh, we're going to get right into it. Acts 14, starting at verse 8. It says, In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and started to walk around. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. And they started to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the main speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He, with the crowds, uh, intended to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, men. Why are you doing these things? We're men also with the same nature as you, and we're proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness." Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to him. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derbe. After they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue In the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. This is God's word. What this passage that we're going to spend some time in this morning looking looking at, what this passage uh, shows us is is something that, that is incredibly important because it's something that had never, ever happened before. In the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts, and if you've joined us, you know this, there's obviously a ton of evangelism. It's kind of one of the major themes of the book of Acts. You have people uh, presenting gospel, uh, delivering gospel presentations to people who did not know Jesus and inviting them to put their trust in Jesus. And those gospel presentations obviously had taken on a lot of different forms. But what every single one of the gospel presentations prior to this in Acts 14, what every single one of them had in common is that they assumed that the listener though not already a Christian, did already believe the Bible. And what this passage represents is the very first time that we see a Christian speaker delivering a gospel presentation uh, to polytheists. In other words, to people who did not believe the Bible and had little to no knowledge of what the Bible actually said. And, And so this passage answers a really interesting question for us. Uh, The question that this passage answers is how do you bring the gospel to a pluralistic society with no biblical foundation? 
A pluralistic society, meaning a society in which everybody believes all kinds of different things, but a society that overall has no biblical foundation. And the reason I find that question very important, very interesting, and very relevant to you and I right here and right now is because if you pick your head up and you look around, you realize that that is what our culture is becoming and has already in so many ways become right now. Um, Ed Stetzer, who's kind of a missiologist and one of the leading voices in Christianity, he's a kind of a cultural expert, and uh, he presented some, some stats at a conference I went to a few years ago. I don't know how COVID has changed this, but I know that they haven't gotten any better. Even back then, researchers reporting that uh, at least 85% of churches in this country alone, 85% of churches were at the end of their life cycle. Uh, and what that means is um, they were either plateaued or in an active state of decline. Uh, 3,500 to 4,000 churches were closing their doors for the last time every single year. And of the very small percentage of churches that were growing, uh, the vast majority of that growth was not from conversion. It wasn't from reaching people in their community. It was what we refer to as transfer growth, which is basically where one church, pardon the, the crass expression, sheep steals from another church. And the reason for that, to a large degree, my conviction, is because we have not understood what Paul would teach us in Acts chapter 14. So today we're going to ask the question, and we're going to answer it in this passage, how do you bring the gospel to a pluralistic society that has no biblical foundation? And based on this passage, there's three answers to that question, and those are going to serve as our three main ideas. So without further ado, we're going to get right to our first answer to that question. It's very simple, but it's pretty profound. Number one, love the needy. It's not an insignificant thing that the, the, the very first thing that happens in this story, which is really serves as the catalyst for the gospel moving into Lystra, is a, um, it's an act of, of love and kindness demonstrated uh, to somebody who had absolutely nothing to offer and was really seen as, as at the bottom of the barrel socially. What you read at the beginning of this story is that Paul was preaching. And a man who was lame from birth, which had all kinds of stigma attached to it in Paul's day, a man who was lame from birth was listening. And when Paul could somehow see that this man had faith, he healed him. Um, now, I just want to consider, ask you to consider for a moment that the people in Lystra had never heard of, of a Christian before. They never heard a gospel presentation before. They'd never listened to a Christian speaker before. So everything that Paul said to them and did in front of them really served as, as the first impression of Christianity in that culture. So this was a tone-setting thing that Paul did. And by healing that man, what Paul proved was at least two things to the people of Lystra about Christianity. First off, it proved that Christians were interested not only in meeting the spiritual needs of people, but also the practical, physical needs of people. And secondly, what Paul proved in healing this man is that Christians were willing to do that, especially for people that the rest of the world looked down on. And really, all Paul is doing here is what, exactly what we saw a man named Philip doing in Samaria in Acts 8. It's what we saw Peter doing in Acts chapter 3. And most importantly, it's what we saw Jesus doing all throughout his time here. It's an amazing thing for me to consider that Jesus could have come down here purely to meet our spiritual needs by dying on the cross and rising again three days later so that the, the doors of heaven would be thrown wide open for us by grace through faith in his name. But instead, what you see time after time after time in Jesus' ministry is that he consistently 
met the, not just the spiritual, but the, the practical, physical, immediate, felt needs of people by either feeding the hungry or healing the sick or, or, or raising the dead. And so really all Paul is doing here in Lystra is what was considered the norm for Christians to do at this point in Christianity's history, which is to minister to people in both word and deed. Uh, but let me just take a moment here and address something that probably has already popped into your mind, namely, uh, Paul could perform miracles. So it's easy to read this story and say, yeah, I bet the gospel did advance pretty rapidly in a society when Christians could simply heal people uh, by speaking to them. But I want to read a quote to you from someone named um, Emperor Julian. In the the year 360, he sat on the throne of the Roman Empire. And and before I read you the quote, one of the most important things to understand about Julian is that he hated Christianity. He did everything that he could to undermine Christianity. He actually wanted to see a revival of paganism. And he wrote a book called Against the Galileans, which was nothing but basically a line-by-line attack against everything that Christians believed. But when Julian, in the year 360, looked out on his empire and realized Christianity wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, Even he could not help but notice the way that Christians cared for people. Here's the quote. He said, where Jews took care of their own and pagans took care of nobody, Christians took care of everybody, not only their own, but the pagan needy as well. Now, Julian made that comment in the year 360. In other words, hundreds of years after the apostles were dead and gone, and so therefore Christians were not performing miracles in his day. And yet... The influence of Christianity continued to spread to the point that history tells us not one generation after Julian sat on the throne of the Roman Empire, uh, Rome actually declared Christianity its official religion. And what that serves to show us is that Christians don't need miracles to see the gospel advance in their society because when, when Christians who have been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus and understand that the Son of God poured his life out for them, when Christians live that out in their communities and pour their lives out for the person that God has placed in front of them, living to meet their needs regardless of what that person uh, believes or, or what they subscribe to or where they came from. When Christians live out that life of ordinary, sacrificial love and generosity, that looks miraculous to a society that's marked otherwise by selfishness and consumerism. So the first thing that we see here to answer the question, how do you bring the gospel to a pluralistic society with no biblical foundation? Number one, love the needy. The second thing that Paul's example shows us, and I'm I'm probably going to spend most of my time on this, and this may very well be the most important thing we cover during our time together today, is going to be our second idea. How do you bring the gospel to a society like Lystra? Number two, you have to identify the idols. So after healing this lame man, the crowd thought that that Paul and Barnabas were gods that had come down and, and taken on human form, and so um, they, they start to, to try to basically make sacrifices to him. And in, in responding to that, here's what Paul says to them in, uh, in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you, and we are proclaiming the good news to you. Let me pause. So what is the good news that Paul came there to proclaim. He answers that question with the next words that came out of his mouth. He says that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And in verse 17, he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons to satisfy your hearts with food and happiness. 
Now, the first thing to point out that you cannot help but notice about this gospel presentation is how different it is from everything we have seen before all throughout the book of Acts. All right, if, if, um, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember we were in chapter 13 and we looked at a sermon that Paul preached in a synagogue to people who believed uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And this is what he said. I'm in, I'm in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. This is how Paul bottom-lined that sermon. He said, therefore... Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So I just want, I just want you to notice here the terms that Paul used. He talks about forgiveness, sin, justification, and the law. All right, that's how he spoke to people who had a working knowledge of Hebrew Scripture or a biblical foundation. But, but here in Lystra, Paul doesn't say anything remotely like that. There's a marked absence of any kind of overtly, classically religious-sounding terms. And, and kind of, this might surprise you, Paul doesn't quote the Bible at all to them. And if that's meant to show us anything, it's that there is no one-size-fits-all way of presenting the gospel. <clears throat> Here's the question. How do you tell people and show people that they need Jesus when they don't believe in the law of God, they don't believe in a God of judgment, they don't believe in in, uh, moral absolutes, they don't believe in heaven and hell, and therefore they don't feel guilty? How do you tell people who think that way that they need Jesus? Now, the reason that's a question that is worth thinking about is because there's a good chance that there are people in your life that you know and love who think just like that. And in in fact, there's a good chance that there's people tuning in and joining me right now on the other side of a screen. Maybe you yourself think like that. And this, this question that I'm raising here is not an abstract thing for me. This is a very personal thing for me because it brings me back to a situation I found myself in that frankly I messed up pretty badly and had no idea how to navigate. All right, if you've been a part of this church for, for really any length of time, you know that before I became a pastor, I was a firefighter. And I remember when I was in the fire department, on one occasion, I was sitting in the engine bay with one of my coworkers, a guy I considered myself really close with at the time, and he asked me the million-dollar question. He asked me, Ryan, why are you a Christian? And Christians don't get a ton of situations like that. I mean, it was on a silver platter for me, and so I answered him the best way that I knew how. I said, and this is as classically, traditionally religious sounding as possible, is exactly what I told him. I said, because Jesus frees me from guilt and shame. And he looked at me like I had seven heads, and he said, well, I don't really struggle with guilt or shame, so I guess I don't need Jesus. And that is exactly where that conversation died, because I had no idea where to go after that. In other words, I had no idea how to communicate to somebody who did not believe in God's law and therefore did not feel guilty for breaking it and understand his need for a Savior. I say all that to say Paul in this passage is showing us how to communicate to people who think just like that because that's exactly how the people in Lystra thought. And there's a good chance it's how people you work with think or people that you're friends with think, or people who are in your family think, or maybe even you yourself think. So let me ask you again, do you understand exactly how important this is? I don't think it's ever been more important for the church to understand what Paul is showing us here. See, when when Paul preached the gospel in synagogues to people who had a working understanding 
of Hebrew Scripture. His gospel presentation is, is remarkably, um, it's, it's simple sounding to us if you were raised kind of in a Christian environment. It's very strategic. It's an airtight argument. Basically, what Paul says to people with a biblical foundation is essentially, you need forgiveness. You've tried to keep the law. You've failed to keep the law. You need a new kind of forgiveness that you can't just work for with your own moral efforts, and Jesus can give it to you. But notice here in, in Acts chapter 14, Paul doesn't, he, he doesn't bother trying that approach to Lystra because it wouldn't have made any sense to people in Lystra, any more sense than it made to my coworker in the engine bay that day. Because let's face it, it's difficult convincing people they need forgiveness for breaking laws that they don't believe in. So instead of telling the people of Lystra, you're condemned by the law and you need new forgiveness, here's what he says. He says, you're enslaved to idols and you need a new master. So let me, let me walk through that. In verse 15, when Paul tells them to turn from worthless things, he's talking about idols there. And that Greek word, worthless, literally means empty. So here's how you would have heard this if you were in the city of Lystra that day about 2,000 years ago. What Paul is saying is these idols you're after, they promise fulfillment, but they're going to leave you empty. And so what you need more than anything else, citizen of Lystra, is a new master who can give you what all these other gods cannot. And that, frankly, was a gospel presentation that would have made perfect sense in a pluralistic, polytheistic society like Lystra. And frankly, it's a gospel presentation that would make just as much sense in a society like ours. So let me explain, just for a moment here, what a polytheistic society like Lystra was like and as I walk through this, I think you're going to come to see that it sounds remarkably similar to where we find ourselves in our culture today. So first off, in a polytheistic society, there was no uh, one supreme God. There were many gods. And so you sacrificed, basically, to whatever god you wanted help from. And so if you were a soldier, you sacrificed to the god of war. If you're a farmer, you sacrificed to the god of agriculture, a merchant, the god of, of uh, commerce. There was a god for everything. Love, beauty, riches, power. You know, Caesar was a god. There was no shortage of gods uh, for you to sacrifice to. But because, this is important to understand, because there was no... Uh, one overarching God that you owed your, your overarching allegiance to, what that meant is that when you sacrificed to all these individual gods, you weren't really worshiping those gods. You were worshiping what you were hoping those gods would give you. You were worshiping uh, strength and power, or you were worshiping love and beauty, or you were worshiping um, you know, riches and wealth. And you were basically saying, that's what I want most in life. That's what would really satisfy me. That's what would really give my life meaning and make my life worth living, and I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to give up, whatever, pay any price in order to get that. If that does not describe the society that we find ourselves in now, I don't know what does. And so speaking to people living that kind of life, what Paul is saying here is, listen, these idols are empty. They promise more than they can deliver. They're never going to deliver on the promises they make you. They take more than they're ever going to give you. But the true God, Paul says, is the exact opposite of that. And he goes on to tell them that this true God, although they had not acknowledged him yet, all of their joy was already coming from him. He'd made everything that they enjoy. The, the, uh, the, the, the harvest season and the rain and their crops and all of their food and all of their joy was already from him. And so the implied statement that he's making is, is basically, listen, imagine how much more joy you would have in your life if you gave up on these false gods 
that are never going to deliver and consistently leave you satisfied and dedicate your whole life to the one true God. That's Paul's gospel presentation. That's what his gospel presentation sounded like to people living in a pluralistic society with no biblical foundation. And so what we have here in Acts 14, I think you can see, is not just a gospel presentation for, for Lystra, but a gospel presentation for our culture. Because even though so many people in our increasingly secularized culture will say, I was just on the phone with a good friend of mine yesterday who's talking about how, how many of their coworkers say this, even though so many people in our culture would say, well, I'm not religious. You know, I, I, I don't observe religious practices. I don't have faith. You know, everybody else has faith, but I'm secular. I kind of just take things at face value. Even if you wouldn't call yourself religious, what everybody has in common in our culture is we're all living for something. We're all looking for something that we've told ourselves would satisfy us. If we we could just get our hands on it, something that we're counting on to give us meaning in life. Even if you say you're not religious, that is a religion. And it's not any different from what people in Leicester were doing. And and the thing is, whatever whatever you, you, you build your life on, whatever that thing is, that is your master. In other words, if, if you look, if, if you build your life on, on love and romance, then you're not free in the strictest sense of the word. You're controlled by the people whose love you most desire. And if you, be, if you happen to be getting that, then your life is going to go great. If you're being denied that, you're going to come apart at the seams. You know, if, if, if you're, you're building your life on, on, on riches or, or money or power or wealth or whatever it is, then you're not free because what, what will happen is you will do anything necessary in order to get those things. You'll make any sacrifice in order to get those things. Once you get them, however much you have is never going to be enough, and you'll live in the constant fear, anxiety, and paranoia of losing what you already have. And so the point is, the point that I'm driving at here is that none of us are in control of our own lives. We're mastered by, by whatever we love the most. And so what Paul is saying here to the Lyconians who lived that way, and what, what I'm convinced Paul would say to people living in our culture who, who so many of us live that same way, is what he's saying here is that the one true God is the one master that we need because he's the one master who does not enslave. Because instead of demanding our lives, he first laid his life down for us. And so he's the one God that instead of playing this carrot-on-a-stick game where we're always finding satisfaction and fulfillment just out of reach, the one true God is the one God that if we get him, he will satisfy us. And if we fail him, instead of punishing us all of our lives with this ongoing sense of, of shame and failure and inadequacy, God is the one God that if we fail him, he'll actually forgive us. And so while service to any other God will lead to nothing but exhaustion and hopelessness and emptiness, like Paul says, service to the one true God, allegiance and submission and worship to the one true God will lead to life and to joy and to fulfillment. Now, before I move on from this point, I just want to make it really clear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that this is the only way to present the gospel to people in our culture, because frankly, our culture is not a monolith. It's, it's not anything like Lystra in that sense where pretty much everybody thinks the same way. People are still molded by a bunch of different cultures, even in our culture. But what I am saying is that there's, a, there's an increasing number of people, there's a growing number of people, a growing demographic in our increasingly secularized culture that are not going to be reached until they hear a gospel presentation that speaks to him the way that Paul spoke to the people at the city of Lystra. And when you zoom out from this, and I'll conclude this point and move on after I say this, but when you zoom out from this, what I can't help admire about Paul is, is the way that he unfailingly started where people are. Paul never beat people over the head with things they did not believe and just say, well, you better believe it. 
you know, until he kind of hit him on the head with the Bible kind of thing. Paul was a, was a master at starting where people were. And what he's saying to the people of Lystra is basically, hey, I can see that you're worshiping all these idols. Fine. But I'm willing to bet that if you got honest with yourself, you would admit that never once have they really satisfied the deepest longings of your heart. Never once have you gotten what you were after and found yourself satisfied by it. And maybe if you got honest with yourself, you can admit that you're running through life playing this ridiculous game, telling yourself, well, if I just got more of what's never satisfied me, maybe then I would be satisfied. And so what Paul says is, what if there was a God? What if there was a God who would not do that to you? What if there was a God who could fulfill you, who could satisfy the deepest longings of your heart in a way that none of these false gods can? I know him, and I'd love to talk to you about him. That's what Paul is saying here. He entered into their world, into their worldview, into their life, and he shows them how on the basis of their own beliefs, they need Jesus. And I say all this to say, Christians who want to see a movement of the gospel in their culture need to learn how to do what Paul did here, to present the gospel in a way that makes sense to the person sitting across the table from them. So secondly, secondly, identify the idols. But thirdly and lastly, how do you bring the gospel to a pluralistic society with no biblical foundation? Number three, you have to endure the trouble. All the way at the end of this passage, uh, when, when Paul, uh, it says that he, he leaves Lystra and he comes back to see who had, who had uh, believed the gospel and entered into the family of God, uh, he, it says that he came back and he, he encouraged them, but there's one specific statement that is recorded for us. It's the only thing we know for sure that he definitely told the people of Lystra, and it's found in verse 22. He says, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now, first off, here's what that does not mean. That cannot mean that if we suffer well and pass it like it's some kind of test, then we get to go to heaven because that would be a complete contradiction to everything else Paul wrote about a salvation by grace alone. So what Paul is saying here in context means at least two things that I think whether or not we, we like this we have to admit that it's true. First off, what this means uh, is that we don't become like Jesus without at least some kind of trouble in our lives. There really is no way for you and I to become more like Jesus apart from spending time in the presence of God. I actually believe that it is impossible to become more like Jesus apart from time spent in the presence of God. But, but here's the thing that I think we can all admit about ourselves. More often than not, it's trouble and only trouble that drives us into the presence of God where we need to be. And I've, I've recently, actually for the last few years, I've been spending a lot of time uh, in the Psalms when I spend time with God. And if you spend even a cursory amount of time in the Psalms, you're going to notice there's a marked absence of Psalms that begin with the psalmist saying, God, my life is perfect. And I could not be happy. I can't even go to sleep. I'm so excited to be me for another moment. I just wanted to take a break from that to tell you how great it is. All right, there's, there certainly are psalms of praise and adoration and exaltation, all that kind of stuff, but the vast majority of the time, it is trouble that drove a psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to write one of the psalms. And all those are, are just recorded prayers of somebody trying to process the, the, hardest th- the hardest things that life has to throw at us in the presence of God. So first and foremost, we don't become like Jesus without at least some kind of trouble in our lives. But it's my conviction that Paul means something even deeper than that and maybe even more important than that. It, it, uh, it recently came to my attention, I, I thought this was really interesting, that a number of early church fathers, when they wrote letters to people, to non-Christians, uh, encouraging them to consider uh, the truth of Christianity, a lot of times what the early church fathers would do, instead of, of offering an intellectual argument, 
uh, although they would certainly do that often, a lot of times what church fathers would do when basically defending the faith is they would just point to the way that Christians suffered and died so well compared to other people. Uh, Christians, specifically in the early church, they had a buoyancy and a resilience about them that in the face of suffering and in the face of death that was shocking to outsiders. And there are historical uh, records that document that for us. For instance, uh, in the year 260, uh, a horrible plague swept through the Mediterranean basin, and it, it, it had people literally dying in the streets. And, uh, you know, people didn't know what it was. We think it might have been Ebola. We're not entirely sure. But it, it absolutely caused people to lose their minds. They were scrambling to get away from the sick and the dying, and people were abandoning their own friends and family members. But it's a plain historical fact that while all that was going on, Christians stayed behind. And they sacrificed their own lives in order to care for the sick. And they did so happily. They did so with gladness. Christians were known to sing hymns when they were being covered with skins and fed uh, to wild animals. They were known to sing hymns when they were being crucified for the faith, their faith along the Appian Way. And so whatever you believed about the Christian beliefs, you could not ignore the way that they handled suffering and death. And I don't know if this speaks to you. I, I find things like this really interesting. But sociologists even now, even, even secular sociologists who don't claim Christianity, are beginning to point out, beginning to see with, with real clarity, that the worst culture in the history of the world, when it comes to preparing people for suffering and giving them resources in the midst of suffering, the worst culture in the history of the world for, for, for doing that is our modern secular culture. Which makes perfect sense. Because according to secular culture, there's nothing beyond this life. So once you die, you rot, and that's it. That's the end of your story. And, and, and if you just think through the implications of that worldview for even a moment, what, you, what you're left with, and this is classic secularism, secularism teaches that the meaning of life is to be happy and to be free to live a life that makes you happy for the momentary amount of time that you have to steal oxygen from trees and turn it into carbon dioxide. And so if that's the meaning of life, as secularism states, what that then means is that suffering cannot be a part of your story. All suffering is is an interruption to it. And that means that, that all, the only thing to do with suffering in a secular worldview is to run as far away from it as possible and break down when and not if it catches up to you. And when you hold that up to Christianity, you realize Christianity offers people resources in the midst of suffering unlike any other belief system on the planet. You know, a couple weeks ago, I had a young guy in my office who's just getting his feet wet in Christianity. He's got all these questions, and he wanted to meet with me and go over them. I absolutely love conversations like that. And so he, he came in, and he hit me with, with the big one, which we, we almost spent all of our time on just this one question. It's, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, what I wanted to do is basically just share with you what I, I told him. Uh, the very first thing I told him was, was that that question actually is more of a problem for secularism than it is for Christianity for reasons that I don't have the time to get into right now. But we spent the bulk of our time uh, just kind of going through the story of the Bible. And we started in the creation account in Genesis, and I talked about how you know, God did not design a world with brokenness and pain and loss and sorrow and death and suffering and all that, that all of that entered the world as a result of us turning our back on God. And then we talked about how really one of the greatest miracles in the history of the universe is the fact that there's a Genesis chapter 4, and then there's a 5, and then there's a 6. And, and really what you're reading from Genesis 4 all the way to Calvary is the story of God working to fix what we had broken. And of course, Calvary shows us exactly how far God was willing to go in order to fix it, in order to fix us, in order to, to get us back and bring us home. But I dead-ended our, our, our conversation. It was, it was great. I dead-ended our conversation, though, by saying something that I'm not even confident everybody on the other side of the screen would agree with. 
but I told you I was just going to share with you what I, what I shared with him. So here's what I told him as I dead-ended all of that discussion. I said, in the end, I don't think Christianity even offers us a question, that, uh, an answer to that question that, that's really going to satisfy us. I don't even think Christianity attempts to. Think about the life of Job. Uh, Job is a guy that experienced an absolutely otherworldly amount of suffering that I just pray God never sees fit to walk me through, that I wonder how I would do if God walked me through. But at the end of Job's life, it's not as though God gave him this, this neatly wrapped, finely tuned answer to Job. This is why I had to walk you through all of that. So just in case you were curious, uh, you know, here's the answer. Problem solved. God doesn't operate like that. Now, of course, uh, we can, as God walks us through things and, and on the other side of things, of course we can look back and we can begin to see with a very limited perspective what God might have been doing in and through us as he walks us through pain and suffering on this side of eternity. But ultimately, there is no verse in Scripture that you can read and memorize that says this is why you've suffered or why you are suffering in such a way that you can read that and say, okay, I'll never have to wonder about that again. On to the other big questions of life. But here's what I told him. Even if Christianity never tells us what the cause of our suffering is, it absolutely does tell us what the cause of our suffering is not. And in Christianity, what you can know is that the cause of your suffering is not that God does not love you and care about you. We know that because of what Jesus did on a cross at a place called Calvary 2,000 years ago. What Jesus did on the cross for you and I at Calvary is the tangible evidence that God takes our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. And because of what Jesus did for you and I at Calvary, there are at least three things that we can hold on to in the midst of suffering. Three resources that no other belief system, certainly not secularism, can offer you. Number one, we know because of what Jesus did for us that when we suffer, we are never alone in our suffering because we serve a Savior who was personally acquainted with it himself. Number two, we know that suffering will never have the final word in our lives. Because just as the grave was not the end for Jesus, just as he rose again, so he has promised that all who put their trust in him will rise again. Meaning suffering will never be the end of our story in Jesus. But thirdly and lastly, in the meantime, in the here and now, what that means is that our suffering has absolutely no power over us in Jesus except to make us more like him. That is why Paul said it is necessary to pass through troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now, at the risk of overstating this and redundancy, I just think it's so important for us to reclaim a theology of suffering. So I'll just, for another moment here, if you give me on this point, and then we'll move to the conclusion. Compare that to the secular view of suffering, and you'll see that these are absolutely worlds apart. They're going to create absolutely world-apart differences when, not if, suffering becomes a part of your and my reality. Suffering says, or secularism says that suffering is nothing but an interruption to your life. Christianity says it is a necessary part of it. Think about what that, think about what that means for you. That means that all of your pain, all of your hardship, all of your trouble, all of your suffering, as much as you hate it, as much as you would avoid it if you could. It's, ne it's a necessary part of your life. And if that sounds bleak to you, I think that is the most hopeful idea and understanding and doctrine of suffering in existence. Because what that means is that everything that you have gone through, 
that might still be impacting you so profoundly even today and everything that you're walking through right now, in Jesus, what that means is that it is not meaningless. It is not for nothing. And not a moment of it will be wasted. And as men and women who follow Jesus over the last 2,000 years have understood that and allowed that truth to sink deeply into their hearts, that has transformed them in such a way that the suffering of God's people has been nothing more than a catalyst for the advance of God's kingdom. And so thirdly and finally, how do you bring the gospel to a pluralistic society with no biblical foundation? You endure the trouble. Because whether or not the world thinks and believes like we think and believe, when Christians face suffering like Christians, it will command their attention. That's why Paul made sure that if the the people of Lystra remembered nothing else from him, they remember this one thing. Now, we've arrived at the end here, and, and uh, you know, this teaching was all about looking at what Paul did and what we can learn from him. But the final thing I wanted to leave you with is not so much what we must do as much as it is about what the gospel does, which is why everything else is possible. I'm going to read you uh, something from verse 11. This is a detail that I intentionally saved for last. Verse 11, it says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the form of men. Now, obviously, the people that day were wrong because Paul and Barnabas were not, in fact, gods who had taken on the form of men. But the reason they believed that, the reason they were even willing to believe something like that is because of their legends. I did a little bit of research around this passage because, you know, I'm a nerd, I guess, and I found that there was a Latin poet named Ovid who about 50 years prior to Paul coming to Lystra, he wrote this story that became a, uh, basically a local legend. And according to Ovid's story, Zeus and Hermes, once upon a time, came down in the form of, uh, of humans, and uh, they were denied hospitality by house after house after house in this village because people didn't recognize them. Until finally, Zeus and Hermes came to the cottage of one poor elderly couple. They and they alone were willing to open up their door uh, for, for Zeus and Hermes. And so in response to that, the gods sent this flood. They destroyed the homes and the lives of everybody who denied them hospitality. And they saved and they unloaded blessings on that one elderly couple. And so having that story, these people were were totally ready to believe that once more the gods had come down, and they didn't want to miss it. They didn't want to ruin it. They didn't want to miss out this time. And so they were willing to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Now, I know I've been kind of harping on our secular culture today. Let me do it one more time. In our secular culture today, we would look down on people in the, in, in the city of Lystra, because they're so primitive, and they're so archaic, and they're not scientific, and look how naive, and look at how, how gullible that they would believe something like that. But the truth is, every single culture, whether they want to or not, every single culture has legends, just like the one in, in, in the city of Lystra, and our culture is absolutely no different. Let me ask you a question that might sound a little bit strange to you. Uh, why is it that even in a culture as secular as ours, we, we are still so obsessed with, with fantasy stories. Whether it's King Arthur, or it's the Chronicles of Narnia, or the Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter, why is it that books uh, of the fantasy genre fly off the shelves, and at least before COVID got here, why is it that people would still flood into movie theaters, spend $15 on a bucket of popcorn to get lost in that fantasy world for just an hour and a half, two hours? I mean, the success of them, I was just thinking about this this week, the success of the Marvel franchise alone says a lot about what people in our culture really believe. And what it shows is that we are still captivated with stories of unlikely heroes, with superhuman abilities, rising up from among us, 
fighting the powers of darkness and evil on our behalf, and even if necessary, laying down their lives to save us. Even in a culture as secular as ours, we still, we're obsessed with those stories, and it begs the question, why? And the Christian answer to that question is because we all know that there is something wrong with this world. And we just can't help but long for a day that somebody would come and set things right. So I made a end-of-the-year resolution. I decided I was going to read through um, a number of books, but one of them was going to be the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. <clears throat> it's funny, every time I tell people that, they say, oh, are you reading through with your kids? Nope, that's just for me. So I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, I just finished up one of the books a couple nights ago. And uh, in this story, uh, this pretty much happens in every one of the books, but in this story you have you know, the forces of good against the forces of evil. And the good guys are so outnumbered and on their last leg and, and they just don't stand a chance. Uh, but of course Aslan shows up at zero hour, which if you're unfamiliar, Aslan's this lion. He clearly represents Jesus. And, uh, and he shows up and he turns things around and they win. But what was really neat is that after the battle was won, uh, the whole world, the whole realm of Narnia, which had been in such kind of decay and corruption, it, it, the whole world itself begins to get renewed. And so after this battle, when evil had finally been dealt with once and for all, uh, and the world was beginning to heal, uh, all of the good guys, <clears throat> they, they sat down for this feast. And the way that the author, C.S. Lewis, described it was so meaningful to me, it was so powerful to me, I actually started getting emotional because the way that he described it, it spoke to this longing in me that I'm convinced is a longing in every single human heart. So let me, let me read it to you. Here's, here's what he said, describing this feast at the end of this war. He said, the best thing of all about this feast was that, was that there was no breaking up or going away. But as the talk grew quieter and slower, one after another would begin to nod and finally drop off to sleep with feet toward the fire and good friends on either side Till at last there was silence all around the circle, and the chattering of water over stone at the ford of Baruna could be heard once more. And I read that description, which has obvious biblical allusions, and I thought, you know, this idea of, of one day the fight finally being over, and uh, an evil being dealt with once and for all, and the world finally being renewed and restored, and, and being able to take part in the celebration marked by peace and joy that's never going to end, where you no longer have to worry about tomorrow. And there's no fear, and there's, there's no doubt, there's no worry, there's no anxiety, there's no depression, there's none of that. That's something that every single human heart longs for. And the reason I bring all this up is because only the gospel can satisfy that longing. Because the gospel says, just like the people of Lystra so desperately wanted to believe, the gospel says that Jesus is the God who really did come down here in human form. But Jesus did something that the people of Lystra would have never imagined. Because when Jesus came down here, instead of demanding sacrifices from us, he became the sacrifice for us. And the hope that we have in Jesus is that by grace through faith in his name, one day we will see the final triumph of good over evil. One day we will see this whole world set right again. One day we will know love without parting. And one day we will take part in a feast, in a celebration marked by joy and peace unending. It's all going to come true in Jesus. So I know I touched on this last week, but I'll leave you with this. If somebody says that they can't become a Christian because they understand what it says, but they just find it too good to be true, you know, at least that person understands what Christianity is really teaching. But if, if you're listening to this, 
and you don't at least want the story that Christianity tells to be true, if you don't at least desire it to be true, then you haven't understood it yet. And I hope you keep coming back till you do. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, you've placed longings in our hearts that we didn't conjure up. We didn't decide to have. But you didn't place those longings there to be perpetually unfulfilled in us. Those longings are meant to lead us to you so that we could find satisfaction and fulfillment in you. Even though we'll never, we'll never find it. We will never find it anywhere else in this world. God, please help us to be a people that learn to follow our longings back into our hearts right to the feet of the cross where we'll find that there is satisfaction and there is life and there is joy and there is peace and there is hope by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.